Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. Look, the thing is, get the salt right, get the sugar right, cook it properly. The guests are going to love it. How do you make it special, though? Give them something they've never had before. By the way, it will always be the best they've ever had of that. If I cook you meatloaf, you are going to judge my meatloaf against your mom's. I will never win against the memory. If I give you an acorn donut with a nochino glaze over a white chocolate potato mousse with wormwood-infused summer squash, it's going to be the best acorn donut you've ever had. <laughs> that is the voice of Rob Connolly of Bullrush Restaurant in St. Louis, Missouri. Rob is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's going to take a prolonged arrangement of the senses to make some sense of this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is Rob Connolly. Rob is the chef of Bull Rush Restaurant in St. Louis, Missouri, which offers his learned take on the food of the Ozarks. This is a fascinating interview that I know you are all going to really enjoy. Before we get to it, just a couple of quick things. On a personal note, I want to share with all of you, if you follow me on Instagram at my personal feed, at Tokeland Andrew, you may have seen it this week, my new book, The Dish, which is coming out later this year, is now available for pre-order. The subtitle of the book is The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food. The book tells the story of all the people whose lives and work come together on a single plate at Wherewithal Restaurant in Chicago. It is my first book since Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. I am very proud of it. I am very excited about it. If you plan to order the book eventually, I am humbly asking that you please order it now. Pre-sales have become very important in publishing. They help determine print runs. They help stoke excitement and support among the PR and marketing teams at the publishing house and they create general excitement for the book launch. The book retails for $29.99, and if you go to the link at the episode description for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you listen, you can navigate from there to your favorite online retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and so on. I thank you in advance for your interest and support. 
Before we dive into today's show, also a reminder that you can and I would say should follow the show on Instagram at Chef Podcast is our handle there. And if you want to follow my writing and restaurant adventures, my personal feed is at Tokeland Andrew. That's T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D Andrew. And as always, we suggest that you subscribe to the pod on whatever platform you listen on. It is free and we'll drop new episodes into your podcast queue as they launch. And lastly, a reminder that the only current website for the pod is andrewtalkstochefs.com. Please come there for information on the show and episodes. We have been independent for going on four years now. And uh, it's the only website where you will find, excuse that chime, sorry about that. It is the only website where you will find uh, up-to-date listings and episodes. So our guest today is Rob Connolly. Rob has an approach to food uh, that is pretty singular. And I would say his path to the professional kitchen is also pretty unique uh, among the most unique we've ever shared her on the pod, I would say. I don't want to get uh, too much into it because we get right into it in the interview itself, but to f- suffice it to say that his focus on the food of the Ozarks and the way he goes about it is super compelling. And some of his approaches to dish and menu design and conception, much of which comes toward the end of the interview, I think will be invaluable to young cooks and aspiring chefs, and even to some established chefs. Uh, He has a pretty unique way of going about what he does. He has some unique priorities in dish conception and execution. And uh, for me, it was a bit of a revelation, and I could see it applying to what many of you out there do or plan to do in your kitchens. I also have to quickly apologize to Rob. We actually interviewed back in July outside at Union Square Park in New York City shortly before I moved back to New York City and got my kids off to college for the first time and took a brief hiatus at the end of the summer. I I don't really have a good reason for sitting on this interview. Sometimes when we're overwhelmed and overextended, we make poor or unthought out decisions. And that's what happened here. This one just kind of kept falling through the cracks. Um, I should have aired it sooner. So my apologies to Rob for making you wait on this airing. I don't think I need to say anything else by way of introduction, except that as as always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Rob Connolly. Here you go. I want to be very honest with you. I pride myself on my research. Um, I, I, I did quite a bit of looking into, you know, Uh, your life and your restaurant and your background. I don't know if I've ever said this to a guest before, but you know, when it comes to, I guess what we can call the milieu that you operate in, uh, you know, this notion of Ozark cuisine, uh, even having read several articles before coming here, I feel totally ill-equipped to even pretend any level of real knowledge 
uh, or fluency in it. So forgive me for any dumb questions along the way, um, but it's just something that I've never interviewed anybody who specializes in what you do. Why don't we just, for people who don't know, which is probably a lot of people, uh, why don't you define what you do from a culinary standpoint? Then I want to back up and talk about uh, your life before you were a chef. The Ozarks are a region that are very much unknown. You know, people think they know it now just because of the TV show, but that's that doesn't really tell you anything about it because that's shot down in Georgia anyway. But the Ozarks are the bottom half of Missouri, the upper third of Arkansas, and then little tidbits of Kansas and Oklahoma. Um, some people also throw in a little tidbit of Illinois, which just has to do with how the Mississippi has changed over uh, thousands of years. And, and so that region is a geographic feature. It's a plateau. As a result, it's got its own culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whenever I talk about this, I have to diverge and quickly acknowledge people always say, oh, you're doing what Sean Brock did. But it's it, it's not. One, that's dismissive. Do they specifically bring up Sean? Always, it's always Sean. Always. You, you <laughs> remember the Brady Bunch episode, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha? Yeah. For me, it's Sean, Sean, Sean. <laughs> because... I mean, the Ozarks is its own region, it's its yeah. own culture. The angle that we take is the indigenous people, when they first encountered the settlers, and the settlers often would bring the enslaved, those three cultures and all the subcultures create the food we eat today in this region. That's kind of a, an arbitrary definition that I've imposed on myself. Because of course the indigenous people were there for hundreds, thousands of years before, but when I look at the food today that we eat, we have to look at that time period, which is the late 18th, early 19th century. It's when those three cultures start interacting that the synergy happens that leads to the food we eat. And, and so there's just all sorts of ways to break that down though at that point. The food of the enslaved, some of that's Southern, some of it's not, some of it's more directly tied to the enslaved coming into the region. Um, or coming up from Texas or other areas. And so we look at Mississippi Delta, we look at Appalachia, of course, uh, Great Plains. But when I look at the indigenous, I think about things like Hopewell culture, Hopewell tradition. And sometimes this stuff is really heavy. You know, when I say the enslaved in my dining room, I see eyes go down mm. and bodies get tight every night, every night. And it takes, three, maybe even four courses before people loosen up and realize I'm not going to browbeat them. I just want them to know where the food's coming from. I can be more direct and say, when I try to define the food of the Ozarks, sometimes it's more important to say what it's not, or what are the things that you can only find in the Ozarks. And this is where it's never a clean story because now uh, we work with the Missouri Botanical Gardens, one of the major botanic gardens in the, the world. Uh, they're one of the few that do classifications of plants. There's some other things that are interesting that they do, like uh, they just acquired the Daniel Mormon database. That may or may not mean anything to the listeners, but Daniel Mormon um, wrote a series of books called Native American uh, Ethnobotany, How Humans Interact with Plants and he has a book on food, a plant on medicine, but it's all tribes of all of North America. They just got that database. That's amazing. Yeah. So that boggles the mind, actually. It, it's well as a project. As a forager chef, yeah. it's my go-to. If I find a plant that I'm not familiar with, I go and see how indigenous people have used it throughout 
time. And I start with the medicine book before I go to the food book mm. because I want to know what impact it's going to have on the body through this ancient wisdom. But the, the reason I bring the Botanic Garden up is I had a meeting with one of their researchers and I said, okay, what is in the Ozarks that we aren't going to find anywhere else? The secondary question is what's edible? <laughs> but the first question is what is there? And for example, there's a, an orchid that you can only find in the Ozarks. We can't eat it, it's near extinct. Good to know though. Um, one that's more uh, common is the chinkapin chestnut tree. People don't think of chestnuts because of the chestnut blight, but we have the chinkapin chestnut in Missouri. Whole fun story there. There's a hermit retired professor living in the woods hiding his grove of chinkapin chestnuts. Uh, a guy who wrote a story about me right after me went to him to write a story and he got blindfolded and driven 30 miles down a dirt road to go into the grove of trees before this this hermit would mm -hmm. tell him the story right and, and so that's something very specific to the ozarks or if we look at uh meats the um well of course the the missouri sasquatch would be great but i'm haven't hunted Momo, the Missouri monster yet, uh -huh. but, but more real is gig suckers. Gig suckers are catfish and it's fishing catfish on a flat boat at night with a flashlight and a spear. That's very Ozark. Doesn't mean that doesn't happen anywhere else, but it's really all of its history is in the Ozarks. And it's why, for example, when Anthony Bourdain did his Ozark episode, uh, he went gig sucking. There, there's a preservation technique we found that I haven't found anywhere else. Uh, over in Appalachia, they have the Firefox book series. In the Ozarks, we have what's called Bittersweet. It's the same thing. It's, it's the historic um, culture around food, homesteading, preservation, all that kind of stuff. And there's a technique that I found in there of beeswax lined muslin to cover the pots to ferment. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and so, sure. so when we find these things, we delve into them as much as we can. My need or my goal is not to say this is exclusively Ozarks. That said, every time someone throws a Sean Brock at me, I want to be able to say no, because right. here's, here's what it is. Here's a demarcation yeah. line. You know, you talk about this mingling of the three cultures that are, you know, historically present in the Ozarks. Historically, I'm assuming those influences came together on, on plates. The, you know, this, this, this mingling of um, indigenous people, the enslaved, uh, and and settlers, right? I'm assuming that came together. Do you in your research, I'm assuming you must have, have a sense of how it started to come together. These aren't necessarily harmonious relationships we're talking about as a rule amongst those populations. Yeah. How did their food start to kind of seep into each other? Well, I, I don't see the food coming together until the 19... Teens and 1920s, maybe a little bit before, but um, we don't research that late in the time period, because before the indigenous people did their thing and right. then they were driven out, and the settlers would bring the enslaved. Well, they wouldn't co-eat with the enslaved, mm -hmm. and so they all had their own things going. But you know where we get a lot of our information on the enslaved is uh, this WPA era interview that's done on freed slaves and it's a searchable database held i believe with the library of congress and, and for people who don't know wpa that's works progress administration right yeah 
And Which so, was an FDR project? I believe it was FDR, and yeah. it's in response to the economic crisis, and so they put people to work mm -hmm. doing uh, government-funded projects. And so, you know, the most famous are the murals that we see in post offices, um, but they, they did a lot with the artists and um, various types of artists. And here they sent people out to do these interviews, which was amazing to think about. An interview, let's say, in 1917, 1920, and this is someone who had been enslaved. So still alive um, and made it through emancipation. And so we're able to see them tell the stories of their time on the farm or the plantation, what they were growing for the family or the business, but also their personal life, what they were eating, how they would celebrate. Because someone's screaming at their radio right now or their, their iPhone, we don't tell the story of the enslaved. I, I never, I never do that. I don't do that with the indigenous people either. It's not my story to tell. We do that in other ways. For me, I need to know it because I need to see how it integrates into the food that I can talk about and how it evolved over time. So when you go to a Southern restaurant and they have okra on the menu and the chef doesn't know why except it's Southern, I, I have a problem with that. I don't need the restaurant to be a political statement, but I have a problem that when chefs don't pay a proper attribution, don't, they just don't care enough to look into it. Mm -hmm. But that food doesn't come into being and as a conglomeration of the three cultures until the teens, the 20s and on, because that's when former slaves and descendants of slaves started working in um, the, the common society. Uh, where, you know, right now we're doing research on uh, Thomas Bullock. His story is very well known. Uh, famous African-American bartender, worked at the St. Louis Country Club. Famous for his mint julep, uh, the gimlet, and his love of absinthe. More famous for getting uh, Teddy Rose, I think it's Teddy, uh, stinking drunk. So we've been researching Tom Bullock, and um, this is where we see Tom Bullock's drinks, which were an evolution of his work in Kentucky now being served to a country club, which surely was an all-white country club back at that time. And that was the, the hot spot to go. And so we see that then infiltrate into the white culture. Mm -hmm. um, but his drinks were coming from a black and white culture. He made it his own and then it evolved again. So that's how we see it happening. But again, that's really after our timeline and that's that's purely um, for self sanity. Like I've got at some point I've got to be able, I've got to be able to stop and and keep track of what we're trying to learn from all this culture. I'm fascinated by the fact that you became a chef. Um, first of all, do you refer to yourself as a chef? I, I never call myself a chef. You don't. That's not a word that gets no, thrown even, around even in your when, kitchen. Even when my staff were classically trained, call me chef. I. I cringe just a little bit. I don't know. That that's going to be a therapy session for me to explain why. But I I think it has to do one with being self-taught. Two inferiority complex, like most chefs, I think, uh, and just the idea that the celebrity chef culture has taken us down some really bad roads as a society and as an industry, and so. I just, I don't want to be that. I, I've encountered a lot of people over the years. Well, first of all, historically, I know a lot of women who 
never really liked to be used that word um, for a lot of associations they made with it and, and things like that. But, you know, we're about three blocks from Gramercy Tavern here. And Mike Anthony, you know, one of the most celebrated chefs in New York. I mean, people call him Mike in the kitchen. Um, um, uh, but it, that doesn't surprise me to hear you say that, given your background and some of the reasons you just said. But well, I would rather earn your respect than have you use a title. At what point did you make the decision that you were going to go all in on, let's call it the restaurant thing yeah. uh, because that's not it's not something you aspire to as a youth it is something you come to from an academic we say from academia as as a background you have a psychology degree is that correct so i have a doctorate in sports psychology in sports psychology i mean these are not things that are the traditional yeah. um uh breadcrumbs that lead one to the professional kitchen at what point did you decide if this is even the right way to put it that a restaurant was the right sort of vessel for communicating um, some of the objects of your intellectual fascination? So I started cooking professionally at 40. And I did that because the I'd done a bunch of nonprofit work and I wrote big grants, like the multi-year, multi-million dollar grants. I loved it, I was good at it, but man, did it wipe me out. Every deadline, as soon as I would hit the submit button on that grant application, I would just be exhausted. Depleted, yeah. And it, it was emotionally really difficult. In the meantime, in my private life, I loved entertaining. And, you know, I guess I, I, I can easily say I do it because of the, the hospitality aspect of restauranting, which I know a lot of people forget about. The longer you're in that business, it, it's easy to walk away from that and think of money or fame or whatever. But to me, it's, I mean, the way my restaurant's designed right now, I have to see every customer every night, every course, every plate. I, I need I need that. I need to know that they're having a good time and a good meal. What Elvis Costello referred to as the human touch. Yeah. So when I turned 40, I had already started doing some uh, on-the-side pop-up dinners. Um, I had started a cheese club because I was in a super small town. We didn't have access to cheese. And so... Well, let's say I, I drank a lot of wine with a friend one night and we had the name and then it had to come to fruition because we had a name. It was the Silver City Cut the Cheese Club. You He's just in. punctured my sense of you as a learned, uh, <laughs> distinguished individual. The Cut Not the at all. Cheese Club? We, we, we had a cheese club and we would fly <laughs> in expensive retail cheese from cheese.com or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. it was called in the day what year are we in here just so um, i get a sense of or roughly just so i get a sense of where we were with the availability of good that cheese been, so that would have been 14 15 years ago oh so you could get good stuff you could get it online yeah. back then there was like two websites yep. and um and so we would fly in and just cut it up and sell it and the first party was seven friends but it's a small town where it got out. Second party was 25 friends. Mm -hmm. Third party, we were at an art gallery. We had 70 people. And we ran that almost two years. The last one was at a furniture warehouse. And we had almost 200 guests. And that's when we said, you know what? This, this is not working. Because I was making pennies on it. I was still doing my full-time job. And uh, but But what we realized is there there was an energy around the work that I was doing even with just cheese and even bringing and, and one of my goals was like okay I know you understand cheddar and maybe even aged cheddar but let me bring in 
something a little crazy for that town, Telegio, or 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 there is a great musk coated whatever, yeah, yeah, eighty yeah. bucks a pound. Yeah. I mean, I I remember bringing in uh, Vinjon, and I had had it once before and was kind of like, oh my god, Vinjon, this is amazing. But I also knew like the business of Vinjon doesn't release for I think it's seven years, and those are the bottles that are like. 70 80 bucks yeah, for to anyone start. who's thrown by the way vinjon is not a cheese we transition yeah. there to, to wine but it yeah. makes sense because yes. guess what cheese i would have served with it conte of course mm -hmm. and so uh, just ex helping people in this small town experience things that they may not have otherwise experienced so did i did i have a, my question was back was my question backwards you know from <laughs> from the broad strokes of your bio yeah. i had assumed that the restaurant was a receptacle uh for you know, you to express all the, you know, to share the knowledge that you had acquired, but it's actually the other way around. Yeah, you had a hospitality way. bug and your research gave you kind of a motif and yeah. to, to set how, I don't know what exactly your motivation was, but it gave you a distinguishing concept and, and a, a hook for, uh, for you to take this personal passion to its furthest conclusion. Is that, yeah. is that yeah. more what well, it was? So, Yes, you had a very interesting <laughs> because actually my free time reading was things like Art of Eating, Edward Bear. I mean, sure. that's that's time stamping me. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's also giving context for how my brain was working back then. And so when I started doing these things, it wasn't just, well, here's some cheddar and it's cut up. I have to tell you about the history of cheddar or this is a cheddar from another country. And why is that important? And so that led, though, to. Um, I can I can ultimately get to the story of the restaurant and we'll get there. it's a Don't pretty worry. it's a I'm pretty, actually managing this in the background of my brain. Well, I, a, I won't let you not do that. Line. There's yeah. a straight line. But so the cheese club led to me doing my first pop up. Mm -hmm. My first pop up, I didn't know any better. I'd never worked in a restaurant a day in my life, even as a kid. But I had eaten at Alinea not too many years before, maybe just one or two years before. I guess that tells us when it was also. And so my first pop-up was 20 courses for 20 or 24 guests. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a staff. It was just me. You charged. Uh, well, I'll tell you how much in a second. <laughs> and I did my own dishes. I left at five in the morning. My guests left just about midnight for a six o'clock dinner. It was hell on all of us. Good food, but I charged for that 24 course meal or 20, 24 course meal. $35. Wow. I didn't know any better. There was a flame explosion in that meal. Um, it was my very first course. So my first course. Was this because you were trying to flambe something or? No, was it some... was even cooler than that. So, so I got oil lamp flues, those glass covers that go on oil lamps. Yes. And remember, this is New Mexico, small town, mountain town, New Mexico. And so I took um, some hatched green chili. I soaked it for a week in Everclear. I put it on the base of the plate with the flue over it. I lit it because I wanted the smell, the wafting of roasted green chilies. There's nothing you can put in front of a New Mexican that's better than that. Yeah. So that was the start. And then up top, I had a skewer. The skewer was a, a prickly pear tuna, the fruit of the prickly pear cactus. Skinned, dethorned, hollowed out of all of its seeds. So now it's a cup. It's a purple fruit cup. And I put a couple drops of chuchupate, which is an indigenous herb that's really bitter, some sweetened goat cheese mousse, and then I capped it with a blueberry. In my brain, this all made sense. And then now I got tempered, quickly fried, set on top. 
And that was how I started my culinary career, which looking back, I'm like, wow, where the hell did I get that? But that was my first thing. But one of my guests thought they were supposed to eat the green chili and they lifted up the oil lamp flu, which gave oxygen to it and went right. this huge yeah. plume of, of flame right. and scared everyone. It yeah, was it's like a science fair nightmare. It was yeah. it was my first dinner theater. Take that, Alinea. <laughs> okay, now let's go. Let's travel back. Now let's have a little flashback in the midst of this. Tell me about your early. I mean, just briefly, but your early childhood, sort of where you were born, where you spent your formative years, and and if it's not too personal, a little bit about kind of you know the dynamics of you know your family. So I'm born and raised St. Louis. Um, almost always raised by a single mom. My parents divorced when I was three or four, so mm. really young. Um, and uh, we saw my dad, you know, every week or whatever, um, kind of a typical, stereotypical man of that time, alcoholic, smoked a lot, worked a lot, um, not abusive, not, at least not to my brother or I, the step siblings might disagree. Um, and then my mom was a hard worker. She stayed with Cigna Insurance. Uh, for 50 years, mm. even before Cigna was Cigna, when mm -hmm. it was Connecticut General. And um, so she would work long hours. And one of the stories she loves to tell, and and she, so she just passed away a couple weeks ago. Uh, that was not unexpected. It, we had been expecting it as fast, so, you know, as good as it could be. But one of the stories she used to love telling was, I would come home after school, and I was a distance runner, so I'd do marathons and ultramarathons, and, and I'd get home, and she would still have two, three, four hours of work to do. But I would come home and get dinner started and then she would finish it. But in the meantime, because I'm a growing boy who's running hundreds of miles a week, I, I would make a big pot of minute rice, mm -hmm. the instant rice and throw a big pat of butter on top and just eat the plain rice and butter. Because your body was absolutely starving. Yeah. 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 And it was easy. Yeah. Minute rice is, yeah. I was gonna say, how long does it take to make minute rice? Well, not a minute. <laughs> Maybe five minutes with yeah. the boil. And and so that my childhood was, um, you know, that latchkey existence. My, my brother and I would come home. Uh, he did more team sports, so he was off doing his thing. In season, I would be with my teams also, but uh, season, I would go off and run. Uh, so a lot of running, we early, early morning and after school too. As a, as a student, right? Uh, were you a natural student? I mean, did you did, did you come to your kind of uh, intellectual nature later in life, or were you a, were you a good student in school? Yeah, I'm laughing. I'm laughing as you're asking the question, only because with my mom's passing, she left a box of report cards mm. and letters and cards and just all sorts of stuff that uh, she gave to each of us. And I just recently went through my report cards, and I'm really disillusioned with my past. I remembered myself being a solid B plus A minus student. That apparently was not true according to the grades. Uh, apparently I was a solid C plus B minus student. And even in topics that you would think I would have excelled in, like history. Oh, so you think history, Science? but PE. Oh, I was just okay, okay in PE. Uh, art, I was very good at art which that I guess makes sense. Math, I remember being terrible at math. Apparently I was great at math. Maybe I should have gone in. Maybe you just into, didn't like it. I, and that's the thing. And that to me, 
that's the connection with what I'm doing now because people always ask me, oh, you've always been into history. No, I hated history. I hate learning wars and generals and that's boring. I don't care about that. But when you make it practical, it's a lot of fun. It's really interesting. You can connect thoughts and ideas. Did any of these report cards, did, did they have comments on them? They did. Did they? Did you fall into the classic kind of future uh, cook, uh, chef, whatever word we're going to use, uh, uh, pattern of uh, people indicating what we would now refer to as like attention deficit no. or any of that stuff? No, 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 no. no I was, I, so uh, I consider myself old gay. And so um, I think about a book back in the 70s called Best Little Boy in the World. Oh, sure. Yeah. And... Um, boy is that me overachiever keep your head down get the work done lots of smiles shaking hands be be perfect in every way and and that's what the comments all say I, my, my attendance I, I never miss more than one one day a year in any of the report cards I saw and so I was always there always did my work always participated I just was just mediocre. <laughs> Did you ever have a uh, like a belated rebellion state as you, when you got older? No. Never did. No, I, I'm too busy. So that didn't exert, that wasn't such a tough uh, lift for you no. to stay in line like that. No, I, I'm, I've always been too busy to, to rebel. Just naturally? Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be a stretch to call it this, but there's a point where, you know, I distance myself from family, distance myself from work because after um, after grad school I had a, a real job I did that for three years I had a relationship breakup and I ended up going to the ski country of Colorado and being a ski bum working on the hill loved it loved it I'd be doing it today if I could um, at, at that point I thought I was gonna be moving down to Peru and continuing climbing because I was my skiing transition to climbing ice climbing and alpine climbing and so I was doing the big 20,000 foot peaks and and loved it. And I think, you know, since you want to get a little personal, I know based on some of the letters I read that my mom left me that I wrote her, I'm not gonna say it was a suicide wish, but it was like, I'm gonna live on the edge because I'm not happy with my life and so fuck it. You know, if I fall off a mountain, fuck it. And I see that very clearly in what I was writing her, which wasn't that clear because she didn't know quite what was going on in my mind. But I mean, the climbing I was doing back then was crazy. And Were there the, any I, close calls? Yeah, all the time. My, my climbing partner, not with me, he took a huge, called a whipper, he took a huge fall and had a concussion and a helicopter flight for life and the whole bit and, and had all sorts of psychological and emotional issues as a result of it. I mean, yeah, it happened all the time. I mean, I, for me, the, the worst is also the most embarrassing. It was on Mount Rainier, which is like a pedestrian hike. For, for a climber. Yeah, sure. But that's why people get hurt up there because they don't realize they you're going sea it. level to 14 and you don't prep for it. And, and sure enough, I barely had drunk any water because a lot of times on hikes, the climbs are just hikes to me. I, I wouldn't drink, I, I don't need to. I'll have a beer when I get home, you know, versus the serious climbs where you make sure I get my leaders in yeah, throughout yeah, the yeah. hike. So yeah, I had some, some close calls, but also I wasn't, I wasn't doing suicidal climbing. I was very careful. I mean, my, my climbing partner and I used to say all the time, um, we walked off of more mountains than we topped out because we knew it wasn't safe. And there's, 
we're not there to die we're there to climb mm-hmm. but like every other climber in the world would say if if they're not on that precipice of life and death then you're not really climbing do climbing and and and, and long distance running fall are they do they fall into are they both considered extra like what would i i don't know the terminology do they do they share a are they categorized at all in an overlapping way? Well, let me throw academia at you. So my my doctorate, yeah, they're they're near identical because they're both endurance sports. Endurance sports, that's the and word I was looking for. You have to be able to focus, but not focus like a basketball player taking a shot. You have to be able to focus over the course of three hours, three days, three weeks, and not lose that focus, but or you'll make a mistake. Versus missing a basket, you know, the consequences, whatever. If you're on a mountain, the consequence is potentially death. If you make a mistake in running, you hit the wall and your race is over. I mean, they're very, very similar. Do you have a sense of what it is that drew you to at least two that you've told me about uh, endurance sports? Do you have a sense of what it is about your makeup that uh, you're, wow, this is a... Yeah, it's easy because I was was scrawny. I've been six foot three my whole life, since I was uh, 14. Okay. Okay. Now I'm COVID weight 180, 183. Let's not weigh myself again, but around there, I have been, I was in high school and into college, into my beer drinking phase even, I was only 135. So take 50 pounds off of this frame, and like, where would it go? Yeah. Uh, But I was, I was 135 until my first year of grad school. And that's been a while. And that was a lot of beer. I went to undergrad in New Orleans. I drank a lot of beer. Yeah. And I wasn't drinking Natty Light or anything like right. that. I was whatever the cheap beer was, but yeah. full calorie. But I did. I wasn't putting on any weight because I was still running. Wait. wait so I'm. So the attraction was keeping lean. No, that wasn't the attraction. But this, yeah. So, I, so I did, I'm not following. Yeah, I did, I'm sorry I did, if I'm, I'm being sorry, dense. Did, did you connect, connect those dots? I did for not me? connect no. the dots. Right. Okay. The, the dots that weren't connected is. I was great at street football, but if you put me on a field with pads, I would break in half. I wasn't good at basketball, despite my height. Yeah. Uh, those team sports, I didn't have the bulk to do the team sports, but I could do distance running and I certainly can do climbing uh, where being lean actually helps. Got it. So uh, why sports psychology as a degree? It was, I mean, just, it was interesting. It was interesting. And that really is all it is because I don't, I never then went on to practice it. I at just, all at all i just wanted to study it and and i think if i'm being more accurate the sports sociology that i had to take as part of the degree was more interesting to me than the psych the psych was interesting uh and some of the stuff we did with high school kids that we would mm-hmm. work with but the sociology was fascinating like the first time i learned about uh indigenous cultures i want to say it was navajo it might have been hopi um and how they play basketball differently than Anglo basketball players because they're about cooperation, not competition, uh, culturally speaking. Uh, that's just fascinating to me how people can be so different living on the same planet. Yeah. And I see that play out throughout my life. I mean, the, the way I eat, I would much rather eat at uh, a cuisine from another country or another ethnicity or another culture than a hamburger. I do love my hamburgers, but, but if you're asking me where to go out, I'm always gonna say, um, a Honduran place. There's a Szechuan place I'm in love with back in St. Louis. There's a Honduran place I'm in love with. Uh, that's where I prefer to go. And it's the same idea. I, w- I want to experience other cultures. Before your current restaurant, there was 
a restaurant, the Curious Kumquat. The Curious Kumquat. Yes. Um, and am I correct? It was a one. You were a one-man band in the kitchen. I, I washed my own dishes, pretty much all the way through to the very last day. Even after the James Beard nomination, even after we were written up in the New York Times, and New Yorkers were flying in to this small mountain town that took three hours after the airport to get to to come have one meal and then they say, well, there's nothing else to do here in this town, which there is, it's a great little town. Even with that, I had a greenhouse out back. So I got, well, I would forage in the morning, then I would greenhouse and garden. And then I would prep my lunch, serve my lunch. And then I would have someone come in to do my dishes, my prep dishes after, while I was doing my dinner prep, because I knew I wouldn't have time for that. So it was a high school kid who would come in after work, he'd knock out dishes for a few hours and then they would leave and then I would cook mm -hmm. the dinners and uh, do my dishes at the end. And how many seats? We were 20 or 24 tables with outside. Tables? Yeah, so okay. I, I think we- So you could have upwards 60 to 70. 50. Oh, even more, okay. Yeah. Would you call working like that an endurance sport of a kind? Um, I don't know any better. It's my baseline. I mean, even now- So I, it is? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, my baseline. No, I'd, so I mean the, the question seriously. Yeah, yeah. so I, to me, my normal week, I go in at 8 a.m. Um, because I do the pastry and I'm there till one or two. I take an hour off to go home, take a quick nap, go back, start over, and I'm there till 11 or midnight mm -hmm. and do that every service night. And then Tuesdays are my prep day. And so that's another six, seven hour day. So what brought about the closure of that restaurant and the genesis of your current restaurant? That restaurant ran almost nine years. Uh, and I didn't really see where else I could take it. One of the things that I see at this st stage of my life is I've never known how to work with media and, and critics and influencers, um, which anyone who Googles me is gonna say, well, that's not true. Well, I think we do interesting stuff and that's what attracts the media, but I've made a lot of mistakes in the past. And in New Mexico, that mistake was, <laughs> I didn't know who the players were. The most influential person in that region um, never came to dinner at my restaurant. I, di I didn't know about inviting them or working with PR people or anything like that. And I know ultimately that held me back. Influential in terms of a writer or a chef? Um, a food writer who was known to pretty much drive the James Beard process at that hmm. point in time in that region. When I got my nomination, it was apparently a popular, a populist vote. A whole bunch of people wrote in for me. Uh, mostly people from Albuquerque and Santa Fe, which you'd have to have perspective. We were five hours away from Albuquerque, six from Santa Fe, and uh, because it's just so remote. But the, normally, I now know PR people often drive that process. Mm -hmm. um, and so in St. Louis, I've actually worked, started working with a PR team mm -hmm. because like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, but that's so right. you sorry to interrupt, but you meant so when you said you in terms of working with the media, it wasn't like you would put your foot in your mouth. You just meant you didn't know how to go about the courtship. Right. Yeah. I didn't know what they wanted from me. I yeah. didn't know that if I served something that wasn't perfect, what the consequences would be. And as it turns out, if you look at my media past, it's almost all travel writers, mm. um, culture writers, but not the food writers because I wasn't on their path. Yeah. But, but you know, like uh, moments for me that really mean a lot. David Kinch sent 
a buddy to eat at my restaurant. Like, how the hell does David Kinch even know I exist? But he knew I existed, which was like, oh my God, this is one of the biggest moments of my career. And so anyway, the, the transition of the restaurant, I'd gone nine years, I didn't know where else I could take it. And my mom was at an age, it's time to get back to St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, let's move. So picked up, moved to St. Louis. It took me a little bit to get the new place open, uh, almost four years, three and a half years, which was really just facility stuff. Anyone who's done that, if you have particular requirements, it's finding the facility or adapting it um, or both a little bit of both it was finding a landlord who would let me put a hood in the middle of a room because I didn't want a, a hood in the back kitchen I wanted a theater in the round I wanted the hood dead center so there's because there's no servers this was me looking forward to uh, addressing the back house front of house disparity and um, I wanted people to see me cook and I wanted to see them eat mm. and so to do that and to be able to talk I mean we don't have servers so I pick up their dirty dishes and put it in the bus tub and that's their chance to say hey how did you make that dish or how do you process acorns because we serve a lot of acorns and I, I needed that and to do that I needed the hood in the middle of the room now think about it from the landlord's perspective yeah. you're gonna cut a hole in my roof in an industry where the failure rate is, was it 80%, 90%? At least, what, yeah. yeah. Whatever it is, you're out of your mind. And and go, only, go, go five years down the line, it's probably close to 100. That's right. Yeah. And so the only reason it worked is I found a landlord who's developing a district. He makes his money in packaging. He's Ooh. an international packaging conglomerate guy. And he puts all of his money into arts. I was but, just gonna say, so like a patron of the arts. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. He yeah. became my patron. His wife fell in love with this little, we did a one year short term daytime thing just to have money coming in and to keep staff. Uh, I, I had a sous chef at the time that I was working with and, and she fell in love with my breakfast, which I give all credit to um, Destroyer out in LA and Jordan Kahn. I, I still say he's the most creative chef in the country. Um, and I Have you been to Vespertine? I have. I went. I've never been. I went uh, one month after they opened because I missed Red Medicine and I regretted it ever since. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, he's got his own stuff, uh, his own stories uh, uh, and baggage. Especially, he just had an article recently in yeah, Eater. Yeah. So, but but he that aside, uh, he I believe is the most creative chef in the country. So I, I really based my breakfast place off of what he was doing at Destroyer because I was just blown away by his overnight oats. <laughs> it's like, how, how can you take overnight oats and make them Michelin star quality, you know? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, tell me if you don't want to talk about it on air and I'll pause the recorder. That article you just mentioned, I've yeah. talked about that on the air with another prominent, with actually a very prominent, Tom Colicchio and I had a conversation yeah. about it. I talked about it in another interview where I was interviewed recently on the Taste podcast. Um, does that did that article diminish your feelings about him or change your feelings about him? Because I didn't think that I didn't think what was described in that article took for me wasn't. I mean, it wasn't like some of the horror stories we've heard. Yeah, it was a very demanding person at a very high end restaurant. This is an art chef. He's a creative. Do you mind chef. the question first of all? No. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Absolutely not. But because, I'm, I'm very because let me throw in yeah, a, another article yeah. that I know you've been thinking about, and that's the one about Bluestone that just came out. 
Stone barns. Stone barns. Yes. Yeah. And so it, it's the same idea that Eater is is going down a path with their stories, um, and I don't have a judgment on. Them. I think they're. I read them both. They're they're interesting stories, but the the stories they're telling are these expose length. Uh, critical analyses of the industry mm -hmm. what what you choose to do with the information's up to the reader with with jordan's with jordan's article i totally walked away saying yeah dude he's this he's a crazy artist of course he's gonna make you walk up and down steps and slippers i remember when i took a leak in his bathroom and i went back and um, i sent my friend down i said you gotta go to the bathroom right now and she's like why i said just go because I knew that something special was happening in that two minute window. And she went down and sure enough, they had completely reset the entire bathroom. Now, what you don't know since you haven't been there is they don't have hand soap. They have a 14, 16 inch bowl, mm -hmm. ceramic bowl on the, the sink with this textured white powder. You don't know it's powder until you put your wet hands in it, which you do find that out of desperation. Mm -hmm. it's, they had gone back and completely raked that. Of course they do at that price, they need to. But when I read that article, I'm like, yeah, that's that's Jordan. Yeah, to me the difference, and I don't mean to digress, but I was when you made a point of mentioning the piece, I was curious to get your take because to me the difference between that and say the Blue Hill Stone Barn piece is, yeah. I feel like the Blue Hill Stone Barn piece, um, part of it anyway, was um, uh, documenting uh, dishonesty, yes. you know, uh, you know, untruth in advertising, not really doing, you know, 11 yeah. Madison Park recently, you know, saying they got stuff from farm, certain farms when they were getting it from Baldor. Now, there's nothing wrong with Baldor unless you say you're not getting your stuff from Baldor. Yeah, so let, let's back it, the truck Jordan, up. I think to your point, it was it was describing a temperament, yep. you know, but it wasn't describing sexual assault. It wasn't describing some of these horrors. I feel like a no, lot. No, but there is yeah. the question of the culture that a chef creates and how that has implications for the staff. So when you're primarily focused on your guests, which we need to be, yeah. but to the degradation of the staff, that can be a problem. It is often a problem. I mean, we all know the hundreds of stories, the limitless stories of chefs yelling at their staff instead of treating them like humans. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to back the story up even more since we're going down this road because to me, there's no more important article or uh, essay that I've read in my professional time than Laura Riley's piece for the Tampa Bay paper, uh, Farm to Fable. And it was a three-piece expose. And that was, I don't know if that was at the beginning of my career or right before my career. It was early though. And um, I walked away from that, yes, of course, there are chefs who can't keep up with their whiteboard and gain things marked properly or changing your website. I forgive that. But when I read the second piece, the farmers who are like, they haven't bought from me in a year and they're making money off my name and I'm struggling to survive. This is about the point when I realized if I'm going to do this, I need full transparency. We, 100%. We, we, yeah. we publish our financials every year so people can see what percentage is going to each. To me, there are a lot of layers of local. There's local and then there's local. Mm -hmm. um, we we publish our, what we do for foraging because I want people to know what I'm foraging. By the way, I don't buy forage except from one farmer who I trust because I've known too many foragers. I, the foraging world's small and I could 
I won't, but I can recant story of after story of chefs saying, hey, I need this. And the forager going downtown to a bank flower box and cutting the flowers and bringing them back to the restaurant and the yeah. chef not asking or caring. Yeah. And so I don't buy forage. Uh, and my local foragers kind of, they, they have a bad perception of me because of that. But like, I don't know you well enough. Yeah. Uh, this one farmer I do because I buy a lot of farm goods from her. Yeah. And I have for six years now. Yeah. Uh, but even there, I've only started buying forage from her in the past year or two. So yeah, those articles to me are important articles for people to have some self-reflection in the industry. When the one came out um, this past week, I sat down with my staff and I said, okay, where are we doing this? Because no one's perfect. Which one in the past the, week? The, the, the Stonebarns Stone one? Yeah, Stonebarns. Yeah. And, and so no one's perfect. And so I wanted my staff to say, yeah, you know what? When you were giving the speech about that dish, you said such and such. And I'm like, shit, I, I absolutely did. And we ran out of that ingredient. Again, it happens. It's, do you fix it? Yes. Do, are, are you... Do you want to fix it? Do you seek out? Right. Do you do you do you make you create an environment where people who work for you are comfortable and know you want to hear it? Yeah. When it comes to the restaurant, everything yeah. I do, I do to an obsessive level because I'm trying to prove a point. I'm of an age. I think legacy. I'm like, how can I make a difference in the industry or the city over time? And I've seen that in St. Louis already. Things have happened because we did them, and. That's great. So if you don't do it right, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And um, right. or as I tell myself in my meditation every morning, if you're not making it better, you're making it worse. Yes. Yeah. And, and for me, I'm not a forever chef at my age, you know. And so I want to make sure that when I say I'm locally sourced, I go as far to the extreme as possible. And in St. Louis, you know what? I'm not the first to do that. Gerard Kraft is the most notable first to do it. And I don't need every restaurant to do that. But the thing right. is, by doing that, we create infrastructures and yeah, yeah, systems yeah, yeah. that can support yes. a food system year round. I, you know, I've, I've looked at photographs of your food online. I've seen you in, in interviews uh, use uh, words that are, you know, contain the root modern in it, which implies something. If I'm not wrong about this, I, I and I know a lot of chefs don't like to, um, you know, label what they do, right? That's something that journalists do that a lot of people who do what you yeah. do don't particularly like. Most yeah. chefs I know would like to just say, well, I do like my, I do my, you know, I do Rob's food. That's yeah. what I do. Just for clarity and, and making it something that people who can only hear us right now and aren't seeing your website, although I will link to it on the show page. It's, it seems to me more of a kindred spirit with kind of like the Nordic cuisine or something Nailed like it. that. Is that, is that an, is that a more accurate comp you, as, you, as the you nailed it. publishing it, people say? Yeah. So you nailed it, but let me tell you why. It's okay. not because I'm copying new Nordic because I'm not at all. No, but I mean, the modern for a lot of people would, in, would imply like additive or additives, you yeah. know, a lot of, chem, you know, um, um, xanthan gum and, you know, and yeah. a lot of this stuff. That's not you. We have a little bit, but it, I always say it has to have a purpose. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I might make it. And we have a foam that we use. And I know people skew foams, but there, there's a reason for foams. Well, at that point to me, those things have just been subsumed into modern, into cooking in the 
this century. Yeah, but here, here's the that doesn't make something modernist. This is the difference between me and a lot of people. The reason why I put a foam on a plate is the flavor is so faint. I need to create or expand the aeration to get surface structure because the way the mouth uh, acknowledges flavor and is interpreted. Uh, one of my summer readings was, um, oh shoot, it's a guy from Columbia who wrote a book on this flavor receptor technology or something. I, I don't remember the name of the book, but just thinking how the brain interprets the, fla the flavor receptors. And so that's the only time we do foams because I need to expand the ability of the tongue to get the flavor. But enough about foams. So it's funny that you went straight there because um, the reason I plate the way I do is one, I hate tweezered food. There's a reason for tweezers if it's sticky or small or whatever, but it slows the food down. It, t it takes away the, the personal touch of the chef. And as a consequence, my food is not beautiful and Instagrammable by today's standards, in my opinion. In my opinion, I by think, the standards of perfectionism, yeah, I, I, symmetry. Symmetry is very important, I, like stuff stuff that shoots well from above. Yes, I, I do that a lot. So, oftentimes, I say to my staff, my younger staff, who are trying to be fussy with their plates, like less is more, white space is good. Think sparse. Sparse to me is put your gooey thing on the bottom, your crunchy thing on top and your sauce to cover it all so no one sees it. And we don't do garnish. Nothing goes on that plate that's not intended for a flavor or texture. And nothing that's not meant to be eaten. And absolutely nothing yeah, that's, that's my big pet eaten. peeve. Oh, yeah. man. Well, and, and a good friend of mine who's a, a writer, uh, a food writer actually, she gave me the term superfluous saucing. I hate superfluous saucing because she drilled that into my head years ago when I see a swoosh. like. Why is that swoosh there? I, you know, just give me the sauce. Because ultimately the other thing is when people eat my food, and I think all chefs would th say this, I want you to be able to dissect and taste everything by itself. But really, I want that big fork or that big spoon that has all of it on one bite. Mm -hmm. And so if I've got my plate broken down, you can't do that. Right. And when chefs give me a pea on one part of the plate and a a uh, xanthan thickened sauce on another part of the plate and then the duck breast on another. I'm like, cool, dude. <laughs> I'm saying that with sarcasm. I'm like, cool. That, you know, that's like textbook culinary school 20 years ago. You know, give me your personality. What, what story are you trying to tell me? Not story like my research stuff. That's ridiculous that most places shouldn't do. But I still want to know who you are, why you're cooking. What, what is it? I had a great conversation on the show. Uh, it was my first uh, in-person conversation. It was during COVID. It was in the summer of 21 uh, or maybe summer 20, but we were outside. Um, and the guy's name is James Wayman. Uh, and uh, you guys would actually enjoy each other. You're kind of kindred spirits in a lot of ways. Um, uh, and but he was, you know, he was talking about like every dish has to have a story. Hmm. And I said, I said, you know, I hear chefs talk about this a lot. Like every, you know, dishes, you know, you want the dish to tell a story. I said, what does that mean? You know, really like to the diner. And he said, and this really, I thought about this a lot afterwards. He said, I didn't say you have to tell the story. I said, the dish has to have a story. 
And I, that to me makes a lot more sense. Like this, I think the notion that whatever that means to a given cook or chef, whatever you want to call the person responsible for it, if there is a story to it, however we define that in the case of that dish and that person, I think it will be a more resonant dish. It'll be, a, yeah. it'll, 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 it, for reasons we, maybe you could, I can't quite put words to that. Because but, people are assembling their Instagrammable dish. Things don't make sense. They, they put them there because they think they're supposed to be there. They were told they should be there. They're trained to put things there, but it doesn't make sense. And I, you saying that reminded me in, in my cookbook, I which has been out forever and it's out of mm -hmm. stock. Um, I wrote an essay in there. It was um, how to find your voice as a young chef. And I was too young to be writing that article, but the ideas in there, looking back historically, look the past 15 years since I wrote that or whatever it's been, um, it makes sense. It's the same thing. He's saying, I don't need to tell the story, the, the stories in the food. And it, it's the same as the voice. Like, because my essay said, look, if you start at the point of stealing from the Alinea cookbook, which I went to a meal at a nice restaurant, course by course, seven courses out of the Alinea cookbook, not attributed. And I'm like, hey, I know the Alinea cookbook. And at the end I said, hey, this was a great Alinea meal. Good job, guys. I, I was nice about it, but I wanted them to know like, what the fuck are you doing? Were they taking it back? I, did, I, I didn't, didn't stay stick around, around long it. enough to find out. And, and it was okay. And I had been to Alinea, so I wasn't, I knew yeah. it wasn't really yeah. an Alinea yeah. meal, yeah. but, but. I, you also see that a lot when young cook, like a chef's first job after like several years with sort of a mentor figure, you see a lot of similarity in the in the menu. Which as is they, okay. Yeah, as they kind of find their way to their own thing. That's right. Yeah. And, and but anyway, the, you, you were saying about and, finding and, the voice. And so that is the transition though, because it's the point where you stop mimicking, copying, and you're making because it makes sense to you. Morph you morph into yourself. It makes yeah. sense to you. Yeah. And it's like, I say to my guys all the time because they pull these things from their culinary school training. They're like, oh, we should do ABC. And I'm like, or don't do that. Why? You don't have to poach the salmon. Right. Right. You know, it doesn't have to have a dill sauce. Right. Why can't it be a pawpaw mole? You know, it, yeah, it, that's when you can find your voice because you're creating from inside your head which takes me to Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And the line that resonated with me was to make great food, you have to eat great food. Because mm -hmm. I do believe from my training, you can't imagine beyond what you've experienced. Your brain doesn't have the ability to do that. Yeah, unless you're a one in a million freak right. of nature. So, yeah. so you assimilate things. And the, the strongest people are the ones who can assimilate versus I can only do a B, C, because I learned A, B, and C. Right. It's the people who can say A and C, oh wait, that's almost like a Q. That's yeah. where the fun happens in a restaurant. Yeah, you'll me. hear a lot uh, of chefs, and at least ones that I've interviewed, uh, chefs who have, I think, been very kind of bold in their, you know, their voice, um, talk about having these formative dining experiences. And it's not that they went off and did exactly what that person did, but it's that just they ate a like something like for you it sounds like maybe a lineal was like this yeah. you eat it and you're all of a sudden this new realm of possibility opens up that kind of allows you to sort of access your own inner you know the voice that you have inside you yeah 
right? You stopped seeing barriers or however you want to phrase it. You know what it was for me? Alinea, yes. Uh, good and bad. The last course they served us, Alinea cut the hell out of my mouth. It was some sponge sugar lollipop thing in my mouth. Literally was cut up from it. Uh, but it was an amazing meal. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, But no, I was in Estonia and I went to a place called Neh, N-E-H. Okay. It's not there anymore. I don't know if it ever got a Michelin star or anything. I had never in all of my years of eating had a meal where I could feel the connection between the food and the kitchen staff. Mm. I, it was, it was life altering feeling that. And, and ever since that's been the goal, like how can I be as connected to the food as they were? And when people have asked me, well, what that look like? I'm like, I don't know how to explain it, man. I mean, just the energy they had around it and, and their plating wasn't fussy or fancy. Everything was perfect. Doesn't mean the food was perfect, but the meal was perfect. And it was just beautiful. Mm. It was a beautiful experience and I've never had it since. And no, I wasn't drunk and I wasn't exhausted or no, jet lagged. It, it just really was an amazing meal. Yeah. Yeah. And it activated something in you. Yeah. And I yeah. said, this is what a restaurant's yes. supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you something crazy. There's a writer there, Werner Herzog, made a documentary years ago called Grizzly Man. Yeah. So I love Grizzly Man, and I watched it, and I became a better interviewer. Hmm. And you only see him interview, I think, that one person, the, the wife, or the friend. The friend who had the... Do you ever see that movie? Uh, it's been years. It's the friend who had the, the audio of Timothy Treadwell meeting his demise, which they don't play. You see him listening to it. And he tells her, you must never, you must never, you know, you must never share this with anyone. Yeah. And he doesn't play it for the audience. Um, but the, but the, the things he got out of people and the way he went about it, like my, I do my work on the yeah. page, yeah. but that changed me watching that movie. It yeah. changed me. You've spoken about texture, your affinity for texture, um, as opposed to act, you, the way I heard you phrase it, the thing I looked at before we met or maybe listened to was, um, Oh, you know, instead of taste was the way I don't know if that yeah. was a misspeak or not, but I've never I don't think I've ever and I'm not being derogatory just so I'm clear. That was fascinating to me. Mm. Can you just talk for a moment about how in your um, process of composing a dish you look to texture as sort of a, a North Star of sorts? Yeah, if that's I, the right way to put it. Yeah, I'm right now. I'm I've got two younger chefs in the kitchen. And so I'm thinking a lot about how they take over the menu. And so I'm trying to teach them what's important to me. Otherwise, they're going to revert back to the safety zone, right? And I don't want that. I I did not misspeak, or you did not misspeak, about my prioritization. Look, the thing is, get the salt right, get the sugar right, cook it properly. The guests are going to love it. How do you make it special, though? And I tell my staff, Give them something they've never had before. By the way, it will always be the best they've ever had of that. You know, it's one of my secrets. Great of, quote. Secrets that of is, success. That is a great, something I've never heard anyone else say. That if is I, a great, I, young chefs listening to this, aspiring chefs, that is a wonderful, that is brilliant. If I cook you meatloaf, you are going to judge my meatloaf against your mom's. I will never win against the memory. If I give you an acorn donut with a nochino glaze over a white chocolate potato mousse, with wormwood infused summer squash. It's gonna be the best acorn donut you've ever had. And, and I mean, it is, we say that jokingly, but we're serious about that. No, there's truth that. to that. But I think that is a brilliant 
so simple, right? But it, and so un, obvious. you can't argue it. Yeah. And the second part is, I know I trust you're going to get the sugar, the salt, and the cook right. You're going to have the meat cooked just right, the vegetable cooked just right. That's basic. So let's talk texture. And every time I don't speak in fancy jargon. I, maybe there's words I could use, but I just say, look, where's the goo? Where's the the crunch? Where's the mush? There's a difference between a mush and a goo and a, sh a shmush. Those are all very different. You know, the, in fact, maybe at some point I should come up with my my thesaurus of texture words because I use them all and I'm trying to help them understand ethereally light versus a foamy sauce versus yeah. a um, an aerated sauce versus I see I'm going down the gradation here yes. down to uh, an aioli down to something very claggy. I've been seeing claggy a lot lately in the kitchen because I, they were giving me claggy hush puppies not hush puppies they're corn pones but a customer said that's a bougie hush puppy I'm like, no but, it's not but yes it is so but what, what but there are things um there are at least generally accepted things maybe you would disagree with some of them but you know you do need to have certain contrasts in a dish you know um, sure you, you know there but do you do you feel like you that 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 part of the the case the taste composition do you feel that that's something that just comes to you naturally or easily or that's just kind of a given like uh, I can only answer by saying it's it's obvious to me right so, so like acidity is obvious to you yeah, yeah yeah I can't give you something rich without an acid to balance so that'll it. just be there no matter what so yeah you're, so texture for you is where it, the magic happens yeah it, well yeah because okay. also I mean my guests are always saying I'm not sure what's what's a savory course and what's a dessert I'm like what do you mean it's all the same yeah my my dessert should have some savory elements my entree should have some sweet elements it's forget all that. that that bores me that's not what's interesting it's like how do i make it something gooey crunchy not in a molecular gastronomy way you know i'm using that term purposefully I say not to go back 20 years yeah, but you as a as a cook as an eater this is what you it's respond interesting. to yeah. I, I i don't want to just tap into the stomach it's the the heart the soul and the brain and the brain i'm going to give you stories and history and blah 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 but i had this old guy early on say I didn't recognize a single thing you just served me. He's born and raised Ozars. I didn't recognize a single thing you just served me. He gave us a dramatic pause. And then he said, but every course reminded me of my childhood. Mm. Like, damn, that is a, we didn't know it at the time, but that's exactly what we're trying to do. I can never compete against grandma. But if I get so far away from grandma that you don't recognize it, we've jumped the shark. We've, we've totally missed the, the boat on this one. And it so, should be relatable. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be relatable yeah. and texture to me is how I can make it interesting. I can give you an acorn donut. Guess what? It's going to have the texture of a donut. But when you get into the white chocolate potato mousse, that's sh that texture, it's so light. And it's like, where's this coming from? And you get very specific about the the thickness and the oh, yeah. of, of the well, of I, that potato mousse. Yeah, I, I can tell you that's a double charge ISI with six grams of VersaWhip, three grams of Xanthan. And we can't screw around with that. And it has to be Yukon Golds. So it can't even be New Reds. I mean, that's we have to do that to get that texture. There are plenty of other textures similar that we can make, but that texture that I want with that donut, because otherwise I have to do something more crunchy in that dish, and I don't want to. Were you always aware of this as a, in some ways, in some ways, defining component of your cooking? Or did this, was this something you came to recognize mid-career or later in your path? I don't remember not thinking about it since I've been cooking professionally. Even when I opened the Curious Kumquat, it started off soup salad sandwiches. Even mm -hmm. there, I'm like, oh, that soup needs a crunch. 
<laughs> so I, I wasn't conscious I was doing it, but I know I was. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes with the time that I came into the world, you know, yeah. with yeah. the Lenny and, yeah. and El Bouillon and all that stuff. But, yeah. You know, that, that's so much about texture. I mean, what, what this really um, reminds me, you know, I say this all the time to, young, if I, you know, if I'm, I'm flattered enough to be invited to speak to culinary students or something like that, and, and you often get this, I'm sure you've had this, you get this silly, you know, what's your advice for young cooks? Yeah. It's a pretty open-ended question. Yeah. But what is my advice for young cooks who aspire to be chefs, you know, or whatever we want to call it, who aspire to be in a position at some point of composing their own dishes or whatnot? I always say just be open and, and, and alive to what turns you on. Yeah. Like, don't, and don't overthink it. You know, if you look at a lot of the, the, the real success stories of the last 10 years or so in this country and food, it's people who've just kind of been, I mean, look at what, when David Chang came out of like the kitchens of like Daniel Balud and all this and opened a noodle shop, yeah, people were like, what the hell? Like that seemed crazy. But he knew, he saw, you know, he saw what he was, at least what he wanted to do and what resonated with him. And I think there's several lessons like that. I mean, look at Jordan, what Jordan Khan is doing and everything in between, right? This all ties together in a weird way, right? If, if, yeah. there's, if there is a story in there for you and if you're being true to yourself as a cook and an eater, probably people are gonna respond. Yeah, I, the way I word it is um, people will feel your authentic enthusiasm. If you love what you're doing, there's an audience I mean, look, I was in a town of 7,000, three hours to an airport, and I was packed. And then people started coming in from five hours away and then flying in from New York. And I was packed. And and I didn't, I was not perfect. There's so many dishes I sent out. You know how I cooked duck back then? Because I didn't know how to cook duck. I was braising every friggin' piece of duck I had because I didn't know how else to do it. Mm. And I would, and I even went through this phase where I would take the skin off and dehydrate the skin and then braise the duck and then take the skin uh, fried and put it back on so they could have the crunchy skin. Like I, I didn't know how to do the basic, but I could do this goofy backward ass way of serving Instead them. Instead of like rendering it in like yeah. a pan and then going in the, right. But dis, despite that, yeah. despite that, we had all these people who could feel the enthusiasm of what I was doing. I hear it all the time. Yeah. I feel the enthusiasm in your food. I'm like, okay, that's a little hoity-toity foo-foo for me, but I get it. I get it because I love what I do every single day of my life. No one does the hours we do if you don't love it, you know, or you don't do it long, that's yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that is our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Rob Connolly for joining us and for his patience in waiting for this episode to air. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, if your platform of choice allows for ratings and reviews. Our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single Entendre on iTunes. 
please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And again, my personal handle on Instagram is at Tokeland Andrew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.